0: Now, please stay tuned for Forthright Radio. Welcome to this Forthright Radio for June 10th, 2022. I'm Joy LeClaire. In February of 2022, we interviewed John Leshy about his book, Our Common Ground, A History of America's Public Lands. The history of America's public lands is an evolving story. Our guest today on Forthright Radio environmental writer, activist, and psychoanalyst Joseph Scalia III brought to our attention what's at stake in the recent revision of a National Forest Service plan that affects the area bordering the north of Yellowstone National Park. Joseph Scalia writes, The Gallatin Range is the last crucial and wholly unprotected yet indispensable wild country in the northern reaches of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, a vast wild land of some 20 million acres. A true rare find in today's world of diminishing wild country, here lives all of the fauna of its pre-1492 conditions. In the Rocky Mountain West, in addition to the despoliation of wild lands by extractive industries as well as misguided efforts at forest management, Recreation has proved to be a major threat to both the ecological and the aesthetic or spiritual values of these lands. Over and over and over, We have carved up wilderness for another and yet another use that degrades its integrity. The policy that has dominated this unending subdivision that eschews rigorous reflections on both ecological science and conservation aesthetics has been known as, quote, collaboration and compromise, end quote. This model has been promoted by neoliberal capitalists, or one could accurately say here, predatory capitalist corporate foundations on whose grants most big green environmental groups have grown dependent for their survival. End of the quotes. Welcome to Forthright Radio, Joseph Scalia III. You wrote, I deeply lament that I was president of Montana Wilderness Association, recently renamed Wild Montana, when it was transitioning to the much ballyhooed and highly grant remunerated compromise and collaboration model of navigating conservation disputes. That is, I mourn that I helped shepherd this acquiescent approach into its current popularity. Before we get into the specifics of your piece, please tell us a little bit about your background.
1: I'm the president of Gallatin Yellowstone Wilderness Alliance. I'm a former president in 06 to 08 of Montana Wilderness Association, now called Wild Montana. I came to Montana decades ago, 42 years ago, 1980. I came here for the wilderness I had backpacking experience already in the Southern Missouri Ozarks. But I didn't really know a lot. And I became very good friends with Bill Goslin, who was for over 20 years a wilderness ranger in the Bitterroot Wilderness in western Montana. And Bill and I are still friends. I call Bill my best friend. We've just been very close forever. And he introduced me to a lot about the wilderness. I mean, one, just how to survive, how to primitively hunt fair chase hunting. He taught me also just an aesthetic and spiritual, in the secular sense of the word, appreciation for wilderness. I got very immersed, and I spent a lot of time in the wilderness. So there's that piece of me. And then there's the, what I will say, radical, uh, in the sense of looking at a complete picture, radical. Radical psychoanalyst environmental and social critic and activist I have a doctor of psychoanalysis degree from the Boston Graduate School of psychoanalysis it is in psychoanalysis society and culture I have studied in depth for over 10 years with G freak that's an acronym of in French for it translated into English is the interdisciplinary Freudian group for clinical and cultural research and intervention. They, too, in my sense of the word, are radical, um, and maybe in other senses of the word, too, the more popular, often disparaged sense, radical. They have for 40 years successfully treated psychotics with psychoanalysis, and they have contributed a lot to our knowledge through that of, of also ordinary neurosis, like People like, I'll just say like you and me, sort of like most people. I am nowadays a member of the Lacan School of Psychoanalysis in San Francisco, and I'm part of its ethics cartel, cartel in the sense of we're trying to produce something that we would give to the school, and it's a, in particular a notion of How can the school and how can psychoanalytic institutes behave democratically across all its members while guaranteeing as much as that is possible, that as one becomes an analyst, one becomes it in more than name only? That's a pretty good picture, I think, of me, my interests and my studies and such.
0: What do you mean when you say wilderness as opposed to wild, for example, given that the Montana Wilderness Association, after so many years, changed its name from Montana Wilderness Association to Wild Montana? So I'm asking you not what they think, but what you think.
1: It's a really important question. So there's wilderness with a lowercase w and then there's big wilderness uppercase or big w wilderness. I often use those interchangeably. Let's talk about big wilderness. So that's from the 1964 Wilderness Act. And it's from that piece of legislation that we have wilderness areas in the United States. And that we have in Montana, 3.2 million acres of wilderness. Two of those areas are over a million acres. And if you count the Bitterroot and its connection with the Selway in Idaho, because they're adjacent, they're contiguous, then we have three wilderness areas over a million acres. As compared to Colorado, which has none, they have about 3 million acres of wilderness also, but they're spread out in little pieces So they have two half-million-acre wilderness areas, and then everything else is much smaller than that. So we are really very fortunate. What happens with wilderness is the restrictions are such that the wilderness is truly protected at the highest level that any law we have available and any designation we have available, even if it's bureaucratically determined but not legislated wilderness is the highest level of protection we have available for wildness.
0: We're involved in a discussion at this point of the forest plan revision of the area just north of Yellowstone National Park. Now, some people consider Yellowstone as a national park to be wilderness. It's not. And as we discussed in an earlier program with John Leshy about the various public lands in the United States, the National Forest is considered different from a national park in that it's supposed to be for multiple use. And periodically, it's required, the, the different units of the national forest are required to have a plan and revise past plans. And that's what's happening now. Why are there characteristics of wilderness in the Custer-Gallatin National Forest and What are these areas? You're very upfront that you want to preserve as much as possible as wilderness.
1: We want to preserve an additional one plus million acres of wilderness in the Custer Gallatin National Forest. Right now, the Absorka Beartooth Wilderness, which is one of our largest wilderness areas in the state, and it's at approximately one million acres
0: just for our listeners, many of whom are not familiar with this region, the Absaroka one is northeast of Yellowstone National Park.
1: Yeah, north, and I think it does extend past the eastern border of Yellowstone. I think you're right about that. But it, it also is bordering the northern boundary of Yellowstone. It comes all the way to the Paradise Valley on the west side, and that's one of the Entrances into the park, and it's a big landscape. So, what we would like to do in the Custer Gallatin Forest, oh gosh, and I don't, you know, I don't know exactly. I think the Custer Gallatin Forest has about three million acres. We would like to see an additional 1.1 million acres designated as wilderness. And what's going on right now? There's a huge dispute amongst environmentalists. Amongst what you might call the main, mainstream environmental groups, or the big greens in Montana, and the grassroots environmental groups, the big greens, three in particular, the Montana Wilderness Association, or now called Wild Montana. I'm just going to call them MWA or Montana Wilderness Association as we talk. The Wilderness Society and the Greater Yellowstone Coalition, they and other groups, including a couple of bicycling groups and including logging interests that seem not really formally named, but certainly have had a voice in getting their concerns considered. They all formed the Gallatin Forest Partnership. And they are promoting the wilderness protection of only 120,000 acres across the forest. So that's roughly a tenth, one tenth, 10% of what we are proposing. And of that, most of it would be in the wilderness study area that is in the Gallatin range, which is very important for us to talk about. What is the Gallatin Range and what is that Wilderness Study Area? So the acronym for Wilderness Study Area is WSA, and that's how it's typically referred to. There is a 155,000-acre Wilderness Study Area, or WSA, in the Gallatin Range. The Gallatin Range is adjacent to Yellowstone Park. Well, it actually extends into the park, but the part north of the park comes out of the northwest corner and extends some 70 miles or so, about that, road miles it would be that, into Bozeman, Montana. So that range has 250,000 acres of roadless areas that we would like to see protected as wilderness. It also has this WSA. It's got this Long, rather cumbersome name, the highlight: Parcupine Buffalo Horn, which I named for a specific reason, and that is that I'm going to talk about the Parcupine and Buffalo Horn area, but of this WSA, which is 155,000 acres, Right, So just to keep things straight for the listener, the Gallatin Range has 250,000 acres of roadless areas that we would like to see in wilderness. It also has a smaller area, 155,000 acres that are in this WSA. I spoke of the 1964 Wilderness Act. There was a 1976-77 Montana Wilderness Study Act. It was national legislation. It protects... Anything that gets this designation protects it to the standard, to the degree of wilderness that it had when that law was passed. So that means no roads. You know, basically, it's got to be treated as wilderness with the only exceptions being things like mountain bikes did not exist then. There were no mountain bikes in the WSA. There was some snowmobiling. There was some dirt bike riding. And so you could argue that you could follow that law by allowing the level of those activities that existed at that time. So that's WSA. So it's, it's, it's very protective. If the law is followed and it has not been followed by the Custer Gallon and forest, it has, for contrast, been followed by the Bitterroot National Forest in Western Montana. They've banned all motorized and mechanized. So mountain bikes use there as just because that's the only way to make sure that you can keep it to the standards that existed in 1977. But the Custer Gallatin has allowed motorized and mechanized use in some of the most important parts of the WSA in the Gallatin range. So this is of high concern.
0: Did I understand you to have just said that At this point, the wilderness study area has been violated in terms of what the status quo has been in terms of mechanized vehicles accessing the wilderness study area.
1: Yes. Yep. You did understand me correctly.
0: Okay. So that puts the wilderness aspect of it in a different light then had the laws and regulations been followed,
1: right? Well, yes and no. It does politically, so far it does not ecologically, very important, or environmentally, very important difference. So environmentally, yes, mountain bikes have been allowed in the Porcupine and buffalo horn drainages, I would say to just be unequivocal about it, against the law. And I, I, I will say, too, by the way, the Bitterroot Forest stepped out of line with this back in the day and were convinced by the Friends of the Bitterroot, an environmental group, a grassroots group, not a big green, to obey the law. They did. They changed their policy, no mechanized and no motorized, in their two WSAs in their forest. And they were sued by the motorized and mechanized interest. Recreation groups and they lost in district court. The recreationists did and the law was maintained. So, I mean, there is legal precedent here even, but the Custer Gallen and Forest has not been sued for this and has not changed its policy. So what's happened is. Two things, I said, the political and the environmental consideration. So environmentally, yeah, this has happened. The West Pine Creek drainage, or just the West Pine, I will call it, which is on the east side and in northeast side of part of, of Gallatin Range, like near Livingston, Montana, and right out of the Paradise Valley. It has been used by mountain bikes a fair amount, not motorized to my knowledge, and the parcupine and buffalo horn have been used by both motorized and mechanized. However, the dispersal of wildlife there, so far as we can tell, has not been permanent. It has not been destructive in any way that can't be reversed. In other words, we could render those areas wilderness and we're not going to lose species there. If those areas become recreation areas, they're going to get more use, significantly more use in time as our population grows here, which it's doing terribly, and including recreationists. And so there will be wildlife damage. Politically, though, what happens is the Forest Service can say, well, it's already used by these groups, these three drainages, the Parked Pine, Buffalo Horn and the West Pine. So it makes sense to just let them continue to use it. And it would be really hard to reverse it now and to tell them they can't use it anymore. And that's what the big greens are saying also.
0: Well, let me (laughs) ask you this, Joseph. Exactly why is this a problem for wildlife? It's clear mechanized. I mean, they're very noisy. They spew pollution. and, And that's easy to understand why that's not compatible with wilderness What harm do mountain bikes cause?
1: Yeah, thanks for that question. Dr. David Mattson, a wildlife biologist, has, has done research on this actually, and has demonstrated that hikers and horseback riders cause a dispersal of wildlife like a certain distance. I don't remember the exact numbers, but yeah, a certain distance and for a certain amount of time. And then as you move up, To mountain bikes, there's greater dispersal, and I think for a longer period of time, and then for motorized, greater still. But it's not only that. Then you have to also consider if, as is easily predictable, the usage increases, there's going to be more dispersal. But you have to also consider mountain bikes are able to go faster and farther than horseback riders in these areas or then hikers or even runners for that matter. Although runners, trail runners, is an interesting problem that has not been really studied or debated yet and I think will be coming down the pike. But so, yeah, you get these mountain bikes who can cover a great amount of ground. If they end up getting e-bikes allowed in there, which is also coming down the pike, then that's going to be even worse. And then you get more and more of them. So you're talking about pretty significant dispersal of wildlife.
0: So it is, in fact, truly incompatible with uh, wilderness specificities. Oh, yeah. Where do we stand now in the process? What's happening? At what stage is this National Forest Plan revision?
1: Okay, What's happened is the Gallatin Forest Partnership made its agreement and gave its proposals to the Custer Gallatin National Forest, and then the forest came out with its decision, its travel plan, which it revises every 20 years or so. And regarding wilderness and wilderness study areas, the Forest Service can only make recommendations. Only Congress can do anything about those designations. So, Wilderness study areas is to stay a wilderness study area until Congress decides to make it wilderness or to remove it from WSA status. So only Congress can decide that. Only Congress can decide to legislate wilderness, whether it's land that's been a WSA or not. Only Congress can do those things. The Forest Service can recommend. So it is recommending In the Madison Range, which we have not talked about, but which is across the Gallatin River from the Gallatin Range and also borders Yellowstone, goes right into West Yellowstone, just north of it, which is right there at the northwest entrance to the park. It has at its southern end about a 20,000 acre wild area called the Lion Head that is full of enormous, gorgeous meadows and is just incredible grizzly bear country. In fact, it's one of the places I've encountered grizzly bears in the wild, a, a sow and two cubs at great distance, thankfully. And so it's it's very important grizzly bear habitat. It had been recommended wilderness in the last travel plan. In the new one, the Forest Service has removed that. The Gallon and Forest Partnership had recommended... That it remain recommended wilderness, but it has not come out and really taken a stand against the Forest Service about this change in recommendation. So it's just it's just ignoring it, and in its advertising to its memberships, saying what a victory we have in the Forest Plan, which is really laughable, risible. I mean, it's it's laughable in a way that is sad from a, a, an ethical perspective. Why? Why do you say that? Because if they're really concerned about wild lands, it's not a hard message to come out and say, wait a minute, we're not really in agreement with you guys here. This is an important area. It's kind of a no-brainer, but they're silent. Then there is the porcupine and the buffalo horn. Before I speak of those two vital areas, vital to also to grizzly bears, vital to one of the major elk herds of Yellowstone National Park. But for grizzlies, the Yellowstone Park has approximately 700 grizzly bears, which is not a large enough population for genetic integrity in perpetuity. They need to be able to access a larger grizzly bear population for their genetic future and for their viability to be able to survive, for there to continue to be grizzly bears in Yellowstone National Park. And their access is so where they need to go. The only place to go for that is the Northern Continental Divide ecosystem. So to get there, they have to be able to utilize the parcupine and the buffalo horn and maybe the lion because there's another part of wild lands that are being protected, would be protected by the Northern Rockies Ecosystem Protection Act and REPA as its acronym which is a whole another story would protect 23 million acres in 5 states Montana Idaho Wyoming Eastern Washington and Eastern Oregon. But the grizzlies need to be able to travel out to get to larger grizzly bear populations. And and the real viable population that they need to get to that is self-sustaining right now is right there up the Northern Continental Divide ecosystem. So getting up to the Bob Marshall Wilderness, which is one of our other million plus acre wilderness areas in Montana, and that's adjacent to Glacier National Park, and then the Canadian Rockies and their grizzly bear population. That's all Northern Continental Divide ecosystem. And so if we cut them off through the porcupine and buffalo horn, which we will do, and the lion head, we will cut them off. And well, I mean, that's an eventual, arguably, hypothetically, and reasonably, arguably of great concern, we're sealing their fate to not be able to survive. And there's lots of biological research that speaks to this. This is not talking off the top of my head by any means. So it's of grave concern. And then also elk population. So the elk use those two drainages, which are side by side. They're contiguous and they're only separated by a low ridge. And the whole area is lower elevation, very meadowed, lots of water and mixed with forest. Those two drainages combined are a I'm going to guess 40,000 acres. It's a big area. I've hiked that whole area. And it's enormous and gorgeous. And you can see why the elk winter there and they use it as a birthing grounds because it's more survivable through the winter. In Montana, that means many, many months. It's not just three calendar months of winter. It's some mid-fall into late mid-spring, maybe half a year. And in Yellowstone Park especially, they don't have their birthing grounds there typically. They are at all, to my knowledge. They come out to lower elevation. And so most of the Gallatin range is not that. It's higher. And so they need those areas and they need that particular area, the porcupine buffalo horn, those two drainages side by side. So this has been given up by, this is, this is part of the wilderness study area. The West Pine on the other side of the Gallatins I mentioned, it, it's not quite as ideal for survivability for the elk, but they use it too, very much so. And that has been given up too. So it for only mountain biking. So they're, but they'll build a 22 mile trail in it for mountain bikes. So they will build it and they will come. And Dale Sexton, who is the owner of Jim Bailey's here, an outfitting and bicycle and basically outdoor experiences outfitter in Livingston, big mountain biker. And he is a supporter of the Gallon Forest Partnership, was part of, of it even, but he was torn. And he told me of a time riding through the West Pine on his bike, and he dispersed ahead of some hundreds of elk. That it does make him kind of sick to imagine giving up these areas to the kinds of recreation that the Gallon Forest Partnership would give him up to, right? Mountain biking in the West Pine and motorized and mechanized both in the porcupine and buffalo horn. So they argue that it's practical, right? That that's the, the only way they can protect what they are going to, hopefully, they think, get into wilderness, which is in acres, two thirds of the WSA. So again, about a 100,000 acres, but it's more what we call rock and ice wilderness is called in a disparaging way, meaning it's not representative of the wilderness of the area that is being protected. It's the high country of it that is a small portion of the ecosystem breadth of the life that is sustained in the area. So you carton off to just the high part of that. It's wilderness in name only.
0: In other words, it's less useful as habitat for different plants and animals.
1: Thank you. Perfect. Well said. Yes.
0: You mentioned the Northern Rockies Ecosystem Protection Act. That was actually first introduced in Congress in 1992. So that was the 102nd Congress it was introduced. It's been reintroduced in every Congress except the 109th Congress, even up to our current 117th Congress, and it has died in committee every single time So I guess we shouldn't put too much expectation in that act. I do want to ask you Joseph Scalia, do you feel that the collaborative process itself is inherently useless or Or what is your criticism of the collaborative process? Because isn't different stakeholder groups getting together to try to create solutions acceptable to them a good thing?
1: Let me comment on a thing you said before you asked that question. I think ENRIPA, that's the acronym for Northern Rockies Ecosystem Protection Act. I think ENRIPA is potentially far more viable than it appears to be. There's a lot to say here. So first of all, If the big greens took what I call an actual leadership role in wilderness and went out and really applied all of its monetary and staff resources to get public support for wilderness, they could accomplish a great, great deal. They might even could accomplish NREPA if they all got together. So the big greens, not only in Montana, but in Wyoming and in Idaho. Also, if they got together and got all of their memberships, cause they have big memberships. These are groups with big names that have been around a long time that used to be very different, that used to be more like my group is. But over time, they have changed and they've changed with funding. They've changed with the progression of. Uh, We'll introduce a new thing here, neoliberal capitalism, and how it has kind of taken over many things. I mean, Naomi Klein talks about this, and this changes everything. I think Naomi Klein actually misses some things about the importance of wilderness, though. Yeah, there are many people who have written about this. And what's happened is big corporations have generated foundations that give huge grants and have gotten the government governmental bodies interested also enlisting environmental groups to go along with this certain mentality that the corporate funders and foundations want that basically says look the argument that you just were stating let's get together and be practical about what we can protect right and get with diverse stakeholders and heal social wounds and protect something more than nothing but what's happening is we're The WSA here is protected way more right now than it's going to be, but also they're not healing social wounds. The enmity within the environmental community is terrible, and there are many other, quote, user groups other than environmentalists, especially motorized users who are very disturbed by what's going on. It's a very select group who gets to get "quote healed" in their social angst with each other. So people are excluded. It's kind of like when Max Baucus excluded universal healthcare advocates from the Obamacare hearings right from the beginning. It's like, nope, we're not going to talk about that. It's just not allowed. That's what happened with the Gallon and Forest Partnership. Groups who wanted full protection of the WSA and who were going to advocate for that were not allowed. Just sorry, you have to be willing to get through the door, you have to be willing to give up part of that WSA, for example, as well as other things, but that's the most striking. What's happened is these guys, they have morphed from hardcore protectors of wilderness to this notion of we're gonna be practical, but what's really happened is they've lost their power, but they have a lot of money through all of these grants to present a picture very skillfully and very slick. They are good at it. If they use that ability to sway the public, I think they could have tremendous successes, but they can't really. That's not how they're funded.
0: You are currently president of the Gallatin Yellowstone Wilderness Alliance, Joseph Scalia. What is their position or relationship in this process?
1: We, along with Park County Environmental Council, the Great Obroads for Wilderness, the Sierra Club, Save Our Yellowstone Grizzlies, Alliance for the Wild Rockies, et cetera, Conservation Congress, Friends of the Bitterroot. I mean, it's a number of groups all want to see not only the full WSA in the Gallatin range protected, but the full one plus million acres of roadless lands in the Custer Gallatin protected. and the 250,000 acres in the Gallatin, so another 100,000 larger than its WSA that is roadless. So 250,000 is roadless in the Gallatin's. The WSA is 155,000. So these groups all want to see all of this protected. Our group is the most vocal and has that as its pretty much single mission. So yeah, I would say we're the leading edge of this argument, but with strong support
0: How are you, plural, you and your groups, how are you working? Are you like behind the scenes? Are you lobbying Congress? How is that going?
1: At this point, our greatest work has been public education and public, I would say, impassioning, eliciting the passion of the public by telling the public the rest of the story that they are not being told by the big greens. And we have done this tirelessly and prolifically. And we have talked and we've given many interviews, we've published, we've done public presentations, even some within COVID.
0: So you are working more now on raising public awareness versus yep. directly contacting political entities, would you say?
1: Yes, I would say, but but I would say that what we hope is that through this public education and awareness and impassioning that the public will influence the governmental officials. So, I mean, right now, governmental officials sometimes don't even understand what's going on. Two of the three Park County commissioners, all of whom endorsed the partnership, admitted that they did not know the subtleties of this. They did not know the rest of the story. They did not know all the facts when they endorsed. Yet, once they knew them and and said, we probably wouldn't endorse now if we knew. And I asked them to recant their endorsement. They would not. Same thing for State Representative Laurie Bishop out of Park County. Same story, because they think they can't. They think that their positions They think their electorate would not support them. And so if the people rose up and said, hey, you're my county commissioner, you're my state representative, I don't want this, then they would listen. I think that's how we're going to get to the governmental officials, not through us talking with them directly.
0: What is the timeline here going forward?
1: Yeah, it's really ambiguous. The forest plan is officially out, so... In a way, it's urgent because the forest is doing lots of what's called logging for restoration or resilience purposes, which is really so disingenuous And If you see any of these areas that are logged, supposedly for the health of the forest, they're horrid. It's just restoration, again, in name only. It's basically commercial logging, just given a different name. And in fact, look... I'm going to interject here. The Democratic Party is very complicit in the giving away of our lands and our environment and in the de- dispoliation and destruction of it. Senator John Tester supports the collaboration and compromise model. He wants the Blackfoot Clearwater Stewardship Act in western Montana to pass. It's very much like the Gallon Forest Partnership Agreement he believes that that's how he's going to get elected again. So what's happening is even the Democratic senators and representatives are not saying, we don't want this kind of restoration logging. Joe Biden's 30 by 30 protect 30% of wild lands of the US by the year 2030. It's protected how? It's not. He's supporting this restoration, so-called restoration resilience logging, that is really commercial logging in terms of its destruction. There is an urgency there right now because this logging is, is just continuing and continuing. Regarding the conversion of wilderness study area lands to either removal from WSA status to less protections or rendering them wilderness It's harder to say. There's no clear timeline on that when Congress might act on that. We really just don't know. And John Tester, who will be a big player in that, has not come out publicly saying anything about it. And he's certainly being lobbied by competing interest groups. But I expect right now, I'd be very happy if he surprises me. I expect right now he thinks that It's not in his political best interest to support greater protections than what the forest has recommended. So who knows when something could get introduced into Congress about that.
0: Joseph Scalia, we've talked about the Grizzlies and their need for being able to have land corridors for genetic diversity. One of your articles, however, is headlined, Can the Wolf Unite Us, Environmental Hmm. Leadership in Polarized Time. Talk about the politics of wolves and why you think that's an important issue.
1: Well, I'm glad you asked me, and this lets us get into another domain of concern that I am also very passionate about because I think it's inseparable from everything we've been talking about. We need to talk about Felix Guattari's The Three Ecologies That is, if we're going to protect, if if any emancipation group, if any justice group wants to do its work, it's got to get together with other such groups and not just be atomized, all isolated off one by one by one. We have got to get together. And that means to fight racism, to fight economic injustice, to fight the ravages of capitalism, to fight the, the ravages to the earth. We have got to get together. And if we're going to do that, we have also got to grow up as human beings because right now we cannot get together. We fight, we blame, we indict each other in the awfulest of ways. And so, I mean, there's got to be a transformation simultaneously. They all go hand in hand. They're inextricable from each other of society, of the human and of our relationship to the environment. That just has got to happen. And, you know, that is not imaginable right now. However, if we don't fight for that, we will lose the fight. And if we fight for it, we at least are keeping a placeholder for the possible eventual winning of that fight. And perhaps we are simultaneously gaining ground on winning that fight.
0: So how can the wolf unite us?
1: So what's going on right now (laughs) is a horrid treatment of the gray wolf. So the wolf was delisted, removed from the Endangered Species Act protections in Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming some years ago. But now there's been rising of, and I'm going to link it this way, of neo-fascism and just the kind of hatred that's flying around amongst different opposing groups. And just the squashing of democracy in so many ways that's occurring. One of the aspects of that or concomitants of that is a hatred of predator species. So now wolves are horrid or, or they're great trophies to hang on our walls or to put their hides on our floors with their beautiful coats. And And so what's happened is, some really sadistic hunting laws have, hunting and trapping laws have been put into place just in the last couple of years with much of the public, most of the public disapproving of this, but doesn't matter. And, and so wolves are being, they're being run over by snowmobiles, literally now they're having gasoline thrown into their dens and baby wolves being burned to death. They're being snared. With, you know, chokeholds, they're being leg hold, foothold traps um, caught. They're being drawn in with attractants, food to suck them in, poisoned food. They're being hunted with night scopes so you can shoot them at night, et cetera, etc. cetera, et cetera. I mean, anything like fair chase hunting, forget it. But especially anything like should we be killing these animals at all is barely even talked about because it's not seen as politically feasible again. And again, so here we go back to this is not just Republicans. This was John Tester who made this possible, and that's a Democrat, right? And then when these macabre and and retrograde laws come into effect that allow all of this sadistic treatment of the gray wolf, John Tester says, well, I stand by the state of Montana." It knows how to do the right thing with its wolf population. It was hard to really to assimilate what he what he said. He's approving of all of that. So, again, this is both parties. This is the capital party, as Noam Chomsky says. As Henry Giroux discussed with you recently, we have got to get all of these things turned around. So we've got to learn to speak to each other. So, okay, so how can the wolf unite us? So things are falling apart. The wolf is emblematic of how horrid things are. And as things get worse, this is when society, civilization, and humanity makes ethical changes in consciousness. And that's what we have to do we can't just again as i said i talked about atomization we can't just fight these atomized fights we've got to fight those but we can't do them in isolation and so while things are getting worse what's believed through consciousness studies and through other like social criticism studies like again felix guattari in his last book chaosmosis Talked about when chaos is reigning and we are on the verge of falling apart is when we have then our greatest opportunity to transform. So that's what we need to do is, is transform, not just try to tweak the current system. We have to do that as long as we have it, but always with an eye to getting to a transformed system, one that is of an ethic of the good of the all, all humans all humans and all life so that's how the wolf can unite us is in its plight and in our horror at its plight and in the way that it is representing our falling apart um it's there that's what i meant by that title and i named it that because of my love of the wolf and my reverence for the wolf and wanting to give the wolf some credit and appreciation for its endurance.
0: You introduced me to a term with which I was not familiar, negative hallucinations. Would you briefly explain what negative hallucinations are?
1: This was introduced to me by Christopher Bolas. He talks about this in The Democratic State of Mind and in Civilization and Its Discontents he's a psychoanalyst and a social critic, and he did not introduce the term. But it means, and especially for him, but I think in its original introduction to just not seeing what's right in front of your face. So hallucination in the positive sense, right? Oh, I see something that isn't there. Negative hallucination, I don't see something that is there. So kind of like denial only invoking a more powerful term to make the point that this is really crazy. This is like on the order of an extreme state of mental, psychological meltdown, on the order of activated, destructive, self-destructive psychosis. That's how crazy this is, and there is so much that we as individuals are not seeing and that we as a society are not seeing. I mean, we can't organize to talk about even such things as human overpopulation. Like, that's not even a discussion that the leaders of the world are having. How are we going to change human overpopulation? But also it's happening on lots of little molecular levels. I mean, just people and social groups. It's like, oh, let's not talk about those horrible things. I don't like to think about that. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that in the last couple of years. That's it again. That's negative hallucination. It's very willful negative hallucination. But there's also a non-willful, and I think that's more the point. It's just not even seeing, not only silencing it or turning away, but not seeing in the first place. So that is ubiquitous or (laughs) nearly literally ubiquitous when you look at the scale of destruction. As a collective, we aren't seeing it.
0: Joseph Scalia, final words for our listeners before we say goodbye.
1: It's very hard to speak to people who assail you, to speak with people, to listen to people who revile you. Yet, we have to be able to do that. We have to give those who are outraged, those who are indignant, a space to speak and to be heard and perhaps to have a different thought upon being heard. There is a time to say no enough. You have transgressed and crossed the line. But there is also a time to really hear beyond the usual bounds of what we think we can bear. And that can, in a different way of bearing, bear fruit. And so within the environmental community, across grassroots and mainstream, even within grassroots, I mean, we've had our struggles. I'm sure the same goes on within mainstream. Well, I know it does because I remember it when I was part of that and was, yeah, (laughs) yeah. was naive and malleable to the collaboration and compromise model at that time. There's so much enmity and agonism and antagonism, and we have got to stop reviling each other. So, uh, yeah, I'll stop with that.
0: That's a positive note on which to end. Thank you very much for joining us today on Forthright Radio, Joseph Scalia. We will link to your writings on the website of the archived edition of this interview.
1: All right. Thanks, Joy.
0: You have just heard an interview with Joseph Scalia III. Links to his writings, as well as other articles, can be found at forthright.media. The opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of this station's staff, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production, hosted and produced by Joy LaClaire. We end with excerpts of a talk by Judy Berry from April twenty third,
2: 1993. What I wanted to talk about today is what our philosophical and essentially our religious basis is of our actions. Earth First is not just a direct action, no compromise group, although it certainly is that. But Earth First stands for a philosophy, and the philosophy is summarized in those two words, Earth First. And this philosophy is known as deep ecology, or biocentrism. What it says is that the earth is not just here for humans, it's the nature is not here, the purpose of nature is not for a smorgasbord for human consumption, but all species have an equal right to exist for their own sake, not just for their usefulness to humans. And that humans need to take our proper place among the species. We need to learn to live on the earth in a way that isn't destroying the earth. So that instead of like the biotechnology people who want to change nature to suit the wants of humans, rather than that, we need to change the way we live to suit the needs of nature. And these are certainly not new ideas. These ideas are very consistent with the wisdom of the native people that the white industrial capitalist culture slaughtered when they came over here. The earth does not belong to us. We belong to the earth humans did not weave the web of life we are merely a strand in that web and what we do to the web we do to ourselves that's native wisdom that didn't come from Earth First but I think that this philosophy of biocentrism or deep ecology it's a profoundly revolutionary philosophy in the context of the society that we live in today and I think that's one of the reasons why Earth First has had such an impact and encountered such repression above and beyond our numbers Greenpeace, Sierra Club, all of those groups do good work, but they do it in the context of saving nature for humans, basically that their anthropocentric or human-centered view of the world, that we need to treat nature with more respect so that kind of we won't kill the goose that lays the golden eggs. But Earth first sees nature in an entirely different way, in this way of biocentrism or life-centered rather than human-centered because what we do to the web of life, we do to ourselves. We are part of the web of life. And I think that this philosophy of biocentrism or deep ecology is ultimately in the interests of humans as well as in the interests of all the species of the earth. But I think this is a revolutionary philosophy for one reason because it contradicts the religious and political foundations of the destructive society that we live in. The basic of the Judeo-Christian that the earth was put here, that humans will have dominion over the earth, that all of the creatures that we are the supreme beings made in the image of the creator. So that view of the earth is one that really contradicts the biocentric view of the earth. We may not be so aware of this as we go about our daily struggles, but our opposition up in timber country is very aware of it, and there's a really strong kind of right-wing Christian bent that goes along with the opposition... So Lynn White, Jr., in a speech to the American Academy for the Advancement of Science, he says that this idea of dominion over nature means that God planned and fashioned all the natural world explicitly for man's benefit and rule. No item in the physical creation has any purpose save to serve man's purposes. And that's really the mindset that all of us, whether in the cities or in the timber regions, any place, that's the mindset of the opposition and they are very much aware of this. Basically, what he was doing was characterizing the timber struggle as a religious war, as not just a political struggle, but as a religious war. Another example of this is Representative Bill Dannemeyer, another right-wing Republican, who spoke in Eureka in 1991. He said that the big threat to America is the environmentalists, who he claims that we're more powerful than the Democrats and the Republicans put together, oh, that it were so. But uh, anyway, he says... That we should understand that this environmental party has as its objective a mission to change the society, to worship the creation instead of the creator. You have to understand their theology. If you go through life and you don't believe in the hereafter and all you see before you today are trees and birds, if anybody begins to consume these things, then you can get excited about that because it's your whole world. And this is where the militancy comes into the environmental movement. I don't really see that we don't see a hereafter. We see a hereafter for our children and our children's children. And I think that there's not going to be much for the hereafter if we don't stop the logging practices that go along with this theology but and and the destructive practices throughout the society we need to understand where they're coming from and how I think twisted people's minds really are in this society because to justify something like the obvious destruction of the earth all you've got to do is look around you in our area we can see the miles of clear cuts here you can just look at the sky and the oil tanks and everything else and it's really anybody who isn't consciously denying it will recognize that this society is destroying the earth and, and it takes a twisted ideology to justify it I certainly think that's what we're doing so for those reasons, I think we really have to look at the basis of what we're going against, the philosophical basis, and not just look at what we do but why we do it. Rather than just deep ecology or biocentrism, though recently we've been calling this revolutionary ecology because it also has political implications. Deep ecology, biocentrism contradicts the idea of capitalism. If all species have an equal right to exist, then how can Charles Hurwitz, the head of Maxam, claim to own a 2,000-year-old redwood and buy that ownership house? Have the right to cut it down the concept of private property of owning the earth certainly contradicts the idea of deep ecology it certainly contradicts native wisdom and that's the basis of capitalism i also think that capitalism exists by extracting profits not just from the workers but from the earth by taking from the earth more than it gives back so i think that the implications of deep ecology capitalism would have to go and that's one of the reasons i think we're such a threat But even farther than that, why I say it's a profoundly revolutionary philosophy, I also think it contradicts communism or socialism as it's been presented in this world so far. Because communism, socialism, and all the left ideologies that I've ever studied or or learned about, they speak only to the redistribution of the spoils of raping the earth, of a more equitable distribution among different classes of humans. But it doesn't address the relationship of the human society to the earth. And I think that that's the primary contradiction. Marx says the primary contradiction is between labor and capital, between the workers and the bosses. But I think the primary contradiction, as we're seeing by the collapse of the Earth's ecosystems, is between the society and the Earth itself. But that doesn't mean that we should give up. I don't think we have that option. I think we just need to proceed with an awareness of what we're fighting so that we can educate ourselves to what we're doing. We can't back down to this kind of perverted ideology because if we do, our children are going to inherit a wasteland. That's what the hereafter really is for me. And deep ecology does not just represent an ideology. It represents a truth. It doesn't matter whether or not humans think the Earth is here for our consumption, whether or not humans think that they're the supreme beings on Earth. The fact is that nature is an interrelated system and that humans are merely a part of that system and not the recipients of the system. And it doesn't matter whether we recognize it or not, it still exists. And our failure to recognize it is what's causing the collapse of the life support systems of the Earth. We need to keep on with our struggles and we need to face up to whatever they throw at us. We need to remember what we're fighting against and educate ourselves about it. Spread the overt philosophy of deep ecology, biocentrism, revolutionary philosophy, earth first.